This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Students headed off to college, beware. The infamous freshman 15 is for real. Studies have shown that nearly one in four freshmen gain at least 5% of their body weight, an average of about 10 pounds, during their first semester. And that's just the beginning. Here to discuss this and the whys and wherefores of this problem is Dr. Tanya Horacek, a registered dietitian and professor of nutrition in the Department of Public Health Food Studies and Nutrition from Falk College at Syracuse University. Welcome, Dr. Horacek. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Linda. It's a pleasure to be here. So the college students, college students are really at risk for excessive weight gain, it seems. Tell us about that. Is this a real phenomenon? It is. It is, unfortunately. College students are just like the rest of the American public, and that about 30% are right now overweight or obese, and that has increased over the past 10 years. And so they're on the same trajectory as all Americans in terms of their risk for weight gain. But is there something unique either about that age group or about the experience of going away to college that may contribute, I mean, we're going to talk in more detail yeah. about what you found as far as contributing factors, but the mere fact that you're, that this whole idea of the freshman 15, what could be driving that? Definitely, there are contributing factors, and they do gain a significant amount in those first couple of semesters. Part of it is the newness of being on your own, maneuvering the dining hall, going out, eating out, um, drinking, unfortunately, so there's quite a few factors that do contribute. Yeah, people have often said it's the beer mm -hmm. or, the, or the, the freedom that they now have mm -hmm. to drink whenever they want. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's quite that excessive, but, and also, do you think there's something about the meal plan or the fact that they can eat as much as they want in any given set, setting that plays a role there, that, too? That is an adjustment, and unfortunately, most students say they don't like the dining hall when actually they have access to 500 different foods, a wonderful environment where they really could learn and taste a variety of things, but they fall into a habit of always going and eating what they like. And then they also do have access to high-calorie desserts and other foods that they could have at every meal if they wanted. So I mentioned that the, there's, there's usually about a 5% increase in their body weight in the first semester. Mm -hmm. What is the trajectory that they're in, engaged in at that point. Does it continue it, at it that does, rate? It does slow down. So we do see significant weight gain in the first year. It does level off. And then um, typically when they move off campus, it levels off a little bit. But Most of the time when you think about that kind of weight gain, as we talked about initially, we talked about the fact that they're exposed perhaps to more food or they may eat at odd hours, all those kinds mm -hmm. of things that could play a role. But people often, therefore, they think about diet, but then they also think about exercise or lack thereof. Are those the two still the most two crucial factors that play a role? So how that's balancing out. They're pretty good with exercise. About 60% of college students are getting the minimum 150 minutes a week, but it might not be enough. There's a little bit of excess calories, really low in the fruits and vegetables. Only about 11% are meeting the five cups a day, so it's really low on the fruits and vegetables. So it's the nature of what they're eating. Yes, low whole grains, and now with the whole scare and all these current fad diets, they're not even eating carbs, so that's a contributing factor. Sugar-sweetened beverages, we see young men probably more so drinking the sodas, and young women, the coffee drinks. Those contribute. They all add up. 
So, so in truth, that is still true, that it is diet and exercise. That um, is the typical balance equation that we've looked at, and it does come back to a lot of that in versus out. But we know there are other factors. I mean, genetics is also a factor. But we're also finding other factors like uh, sleep and eating competence um, that they might be contributing factors. Yeah, help us understand that. So when you say sleep, okay, what role does sleep play, in, either in, uh, hypothetically or in fact, because I know you've done some research we'll talk about in a minute. What, what role does it play? So sleep, we can look at total number of hours of sleep per night. And even with the adult population, the lower the number of hours of sleep, the higher likely you are to eat um, poor quality foods, higher body weight, those associations. So, so in, in, in essence, what you're saying is it's not the fact that the person is sleep deprived, but what sleep deprivation does is have them perhaps be less regulated in their food interests or in their appetite. Partly. I mean, these are all associations. We don't actually always know causation, which one came first or second. But the other way we could look at sleep is also sleep quality. And one of the tools we use is the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, and it measures seven parameters. So one is your self-perception of the quality of your sleep. Another is latency, so how quickly you're able to fall asleep. Then it's duration, how long you actually sleep. Efficacy, so you're in bed, but how much of it are you actually sleeping? Uh, sleep disturbances, waking up in the middle of the night or being woken up early in the morning. Need for medication use, sleep medications. And then finally, uh, the effect the next day, the effects of sleep dysfunction. So if you're overly sleepy or overly tired the next day. So each of those have an equal weighting that contribute to an overall sleep quality score. So that's something you've used to try to evaluate if in fact college students are experiencing sleep issues. Yes, yep. And what have you found? We'll get to those in a minute. Let's okay. talk about eating competence first. Okay. So eating competence is the other factor that, first of all, we are all born eating competent. I would think so. Yes, <laughs> yeah. That. Um, you cried when you were hungry, you kind of pushed the spoon away when you were full. It was mom's job to feed on a consistent schedule off our nice variety of foods. That was the basic role. And then the child's role is to actually decide what they want to eat and how much they want to eat. And so, often it was a battle. Right, yeah. <laughs> Not in the very beginning, <laughs> but over time it became, I would think for a lot of parents, right. a battle, eat your vegetables, yeah, rather than the sugary cereals or what So yes, there are influences that affect even eating competence. So we're born eating competent, and over time, because of diets, because of preferences, because of how we're raised and what we're given access to, you know, there's a decrease in eating competence. So eating competence is made up of four characteristics. And so this kind of balances out what we're eating. So what are the, what are the, the characteristics that determine eating competence. So one is eating attitude, and it's how flexible and open you are. You know, kind of getting away from the rules that you really enjoy eating. You mean you might be more adventuresome in terms of tasting things or trying things that you hadn't experienced before? That might be part of it, yep. And then another is actual food acceptance. So the variety of the foods you like and your willingness to actually try new foods. So one is your whole overall attitude. Second is you're willing to try new foods, then it's internal regulation. So how well we really pay attention to hunger and fullness. 
And now you don't have to always eat when you're hungry and always stop with your full, but you want to respect that. So it's a little bit of like that mindfulness exactly. of, of, around your satiety, whether you really are. Mm -hmm. You need that extra brownie mm -hmm. <laughs> after you've already eaten two. Exactly, exactly. And this has one more component to uh, eating confidence, and that's contextual skills. And it's not that you have to like have the perfect diet in mind, but it's how well you plan ahead, how well you're able to pick off a fast food menu or have cooking skills. It's so it's the skills for managing eating. And sometimes we just don't have those. So all of those four things together make for eating competence. competence. Yeah. And in a second, we'll get to what that is. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Professor of Nutrition, Dr. Tanya Horacek. And we're talking about excessive weight gain that many college students experience and what has made that happen. So you've been studying these factors, whether it be eating competence, as well as sleep quality and duration, as well as the diet and exercise for like over 20 years mm -hmm. and all of their interconnectedness. So what have you found? So one of our recent analysis, we did a multiple regression. And so the subjects that were overweight or obese, that was about 30% of the sample, they were more likely to be female, non-white, older age. Between the 18 and 24, we're talking about older in the college age years. So 23 to 24, right. if anything. Mm -hmm. Lower sleep quality. So that comes back to the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. And then lower eating competence. And higher emotional eating. So those are all associations that we're seeing with higher weight. It's not causation, but we're seeing linkages that these factors are contributing or might be contributing to overweight and obesity. So basically you're saying it's mostly women Mm -hmm. And it's mostly white women, is that correct? No, actually, not not white women. Mm -hmm. Non-white? Right, non-white. Okay, non-white women that are mostly overweight and they're a little bit older age mm -hmm. and they have sleep issues and they have um, eating competence issues. Right. So how do you explain that? What is What hypotheses do you draw from this? Good, good question. Um, <laughs> it's all interconnected. It really is all interconnected how it's not just about the fruits and vegetables or the exercise. It's about the whole attitude of how we think about everything. So when they get caught up in the diet cycle um, and they're not really getting competent, everything contributes. You know, we're not really sure exactly how the sleep contributes, but we know sleep is an important factor to maintain a healthy body weight. So we're not sure exactly which comes first or second. So you've been involved also in this process in the little bit of time we have left in doing interventions to try to change this whole scene. What have you found? What has worked with yeah. college students? So they're a tough group. They're really a tough group because they're in the transition years. They don't really feel that they're at risk. And so our interventions have been challenging, to say the least. Um, it's always been randomized treatment controls. They've always been three-month interventions that they had online, access to online uh, lessons, and then we would follow up a year later. And we were able to make small improvements, you know. In terms of weight loss? No, no, actually not. We never were really able to affect their anthropometric measures. It was more so slight changes in their fruit and vegetable intake, modest increases in uh, physical activity, little better sleep and some of those things don't last the 15 months and so they're really a very tough group to 
Um, so they're intractable. Yeah. <laughs> they gain the weight and they stay that way? Um, it levels off. It levels off. But the problem is, is, you know, this is a very formidable time that they're learning habits that will carry with them into their adulthood, yes. into their child-raising years, that um, we're really trying to help them, you know, set on a good but course. But are they any different? You said in the beginning as we started talking that this is really kind of um, equivalent to or a subset of what's happening in the, the larger population. And yet you're saying they're also a little bit perhaps more difficult to intervene with. What lessons can we take away from that, if any? Well, because they are on the cusp, because it is a transition phase, we're so convinced that it's an important target that we need to continue to try to help. Because first of all, they're the next generation of parents, and this cycle is going to continue with you know low eating confidence and low levels of sleep and higher weight gain and leading to chronic diseases. So. The more that we can do to really help this population, you know, not be so focused on the perfect diet, fruits, vegetables, um, and exercise, but to become more eating competent, to really accept a variety of foods and, and think about things a little bit more flexibly, um, to really try a variety of foods. You'd be surprised how limited the foods are that students like. It's a pretty narrow, short list. So you would say that almost the greatest um greatest factor in all of this is to raise their eating competence, their ability to explore, be open to other kinds of foods, rather than to change their amount or their exercise or any of that. You think that's the biggest I think, factor? I think that overriding factor is going to make the biggest difference. Improving the fruits and vegetables will follow. Improving the exercise will follow. You want to balance out. All of these are interconnected, and so if we can improve the eating competence broaden their awareness of and receptivity to different types of food. Mm -hmm. and, their and their contextual skills, you know, how well they are able to fend for themselves. Take care of themselves, mm -hmm. cook for themselves, mm -hmm. produce, if not produce, then prepare their own meals and that kind right, of thing. Right, And then the sleep also. And improve their sleep yeah. habits as well. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming in. This is very interesting, very interesting research, and, and I'm sure that you'll continue. Obviously, they're a group that need to continue to be studied. Exactly. And uh, if, if only as the bellwether, as you said, <laughs> to what else is going on in our society. Right. Very good. Well, thanks so much for coming in and sharing your information. My guest has been Dr. Tanya Horacek, a registered dietitian, professor of nutrition in the Department of Public Health Food Studies and Nutrition for the Fall College at Syracuse University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.